Hi, this is Rabbi Avi Killip. I'll keep this quick. Hadar relies on the financial support from generous donors in order to create and produce online Torah content. If you value this Torah content from Hadar and want to see more of it in the year ahead, please make a donation at hadar.org slash donate. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, Executive Vice President at Hadar, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. Before we get started with this question, I just, I want you to do something. Yeah, what's that? Listen. Okay. We're going to do a question about the Shema. Oh, I get it now. The Shema is such a central prayer in Jewish life, and yet there's so much to explore about it. There's there's so many different questions we could ask. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things you do it so many times, you sometimes forget, what am I even doing? I used to teach a class where I started by asking people, what's your first Jewish memory? The first thing you can remember in your life that had something to do with Judaism. Um, And almost always, like most of the room, the answer would be saying the Shema at some point with a parent. That that is, it's not only central, but it's it's like early and and deep in people's psyche. Yeah, I mean, not to go too dark, but an incredible story my grandfather used to tell about um, some of the work he did in Europe immediately after World War II trying to find Jewish refugees and Jewish refugee children was they would go into these camps where there were just like a whole bunch of children. And the way they would identify a lot of the Jews was they would simply go around saying the Shema. And when little kids' eyes picked up, they would be like, well, that kid must be Jewish. Wow, that is an amazing story. It's really deep. You're 100% right for a lot of people. Not for everyone, right? But for the people for whom it is, it's yeah. really deep. I actually have a, a child, a four-year-old child in my home these days who walks around sort of absentmindedly saying the Shema. You know, it's like one of the songs that he learned recently. <laughs> it just comes out of his mouth. It's really actually an incredibly beautiful thing to to live with. You're doing around. something right. Um, so here's the question, and it relates, I think, a little bit to this to this uh, bedtime Shema image that we're that okay. we're describing. The questioner writes, I'm confused about when I should be saying Shema. I know it's meant to be said when I lie down and rise up, but it's also said during the morning and evening service. How do I know which is more important? How many times a day should I actually be saying the Shema? So, yeah, where, where do we start with this? Really, what... What is the Shema? How many times should we be saying Shema? Yeah, this is a great question. And I think this is, um, it's a great example of the ways in which things have kind of like a history and build up and new parts get added to various services and prayers. And at the end, you can be left with something that's either kind of super confusing or really rich or both at the same time. So maybe we can disentangle some of that. There's no question the root of the Shema is what the Torah says, when you lie down, when you rise up, have these words, which we understand to be literally 
these words in this paragraph be things that you say first thing in the morning and last thing at night. And whenever you have something like that, it's clearly a framing experience. It's meant to be something where everything that happens in the middle, right, is shaped by that. And at least from a rabbinic perspective, that's understood to be kabbalat ol malchut shamayim and kabbalat ol mitzvot, literally accepting the yoke of the kingdom of heaven and accepting the yoke of the mitzvot. But to translate more idiomatically, and for those of us who don't spend as much time with oxen, such that that metaphor is not as live, perhaps, it's about what are you accountable to, right? The notion that, hey, <laughs> you're not at the top of the pyramid of this world. Uh, you are accountable to God, to forces greater than you, and you have responsibilities that we want to make sure you remember from the moment you wake up till the moment you go to sleep. There's something also about morning and evening, uh, the repetition of that, which makes it into a routine um, which makes it sort of ritual, maybe as distinct from prayer almost, right? It's like, this is just a thing that you say. Like when I say my my son is sort of absentmindedly reciting the Shema, but maybe that's okay, actually, to sometimes be absentmindedly reciting the Shema. That's the point, is it just gets these words into your mouth on the regular. Yeah, and that it's also really important to be first and last. That is, it's almost like you shouldn't have any part of your day that evades the effect of that routine, mm -hmm. right? It's like, this is what it is to be a living, breathing Jew. I'll just take a minute to say that's also um, how we bookend our lives, right? I started by saying, for many of us, the Shema is our first Jewish memory. Um, and then we also have this concept that that's what you want to say on your deathbed. That last thing you say before you think you're about to die is the Shema. It also accompanies us at that first rising and that last lying down. If you think about it that way, it shouldn't be surprising that our earliest sources really talk about the Shema and assume the Shema is something that's really happening in those first moments of consciousness in the day and ending in the last moments of consciousness at night. Um, you can see that in a, in a few sources. So, um, you know, one source talks about actually how if you've, if you've just gotten married or like on your wedding night, you are exempt from the Shema. Now, why would you say that? The idea is you're about to engage in an act of intimacy that is intense, that is taking up a lot of your mental space. And it's like, okay, we, we can't expect you basically to pull it together at that moment and be in this ritual space. But if you think about that, that's of course happening like right at the end of the day, certainly the image that's happening here. It's not mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm going to Minion you know, and then I'm coming home. There's a notion here that that's the very last thing that happens. And so when Rabban Gamliel in the Mishnah says, I said the Shema even on my wedding night, right? Because I didn't want to let go of that special experience. He's basically saying, even on that night, I wanted the very last thing before I went to bed, right? To be this. He may mm -hmm. be an outlier, right? But he gives us a picture of when we're imagining that's happening. And then you have, uh, you know, Rabbi Eliezer, one of the other sages in the Mishnah, when he's describing when do you do the Shema, he says, well, it's as soon as you can really detect any meaningful light that will help you distinguish between tchelet lilavan from the blue on the tzitzit to the white thread on the tzitzit, and you have until sunrise, 
only until sunrise, right? right? Rabbi Eliezer is assuming people in a pre-industrial society are getting up with the light. Most people certainly have to work, have to get up early then. And you do it while it's barely light outside, first thing in the morning, very narrow window. Right. That starts the shift. The first suggestion we get of that shifting is actually Rabbi Yehoshua, who was Rabbi Eliezer's colleague. Right there in the Mishnah says, what do you mean? You don't have to finish it by sunrise. You can say it until like three hours after sunrise. He liked to sleep late? Well, he liked the fact that other people like to sleep late. He actually says, People who are literally princes, but he essentially means wealthy people who don't have to get up super early maybe to go out to the field. They may get up late. And as long as it's a time where some people wake up, that's good enough for waking up Shema, right? For Bikumecha, you have to do it when you get up. As long as there's some people who are waking up, then it's fine. But what he does, he doesn't just limit that to the rich people who are waking up. He's essentially saying, you can be more flexible with that morning Shema and say it later. It's interesting. It raises the question of whether a day begins when the world wakes up or when you wake up, right? Mm -hmm. Is this something cosmic or is this something personal? Yeah. So you've got some shift there. But the other thing which you see when you open the Sidur is very early on, the Shema went from just being these three biblical passages, one about Vahavta, loving God, another Vahayayim Shamoa, about consequences of you know, performing the mitzvot and living up to obligations or not, uh, and the paragraph about tzitzit and those special threads we put on our clothing, to a whole liturgy around it, these blessings before and after. And when you look at that package, you see they're still very tightly anchored in the human experience of beginning and ending the day. So how do the blessings before Shema begin in the morning? Yotzer or uvorei choshech. Oh my God, you've created light, God. And we're in awe of the fact that the sun is rising again. Very clearly a blessing that was meant to be said, like Rabbi Eliezer, the early light hours of the day, right? right, And in the evening, the blessing that comes all the way at the end of Shema is Hashkivenu, lay me down to sleep. And it seems like it's about the fears of going into dark and all of this. And so those blessings are kind of a bigger picture of a lot more words, but they still seem to really be anchoring the Shema in first thing in the morning, last thing at night. On the one hand, yes, and on the other hand, how can something be first if I have a blessing that goes before it? And how can something be last if I have a blessing that comes after it? That's 100% right, and that's this interesting move. So on the one hand, the Shema has now been dislodged from the very first or very last thing, but the blessing structures seem like they're still trying to hold the mood, right? Mm -hmm. Like. Yeah, the Shema, but then we do want to talk about like anxiety of going to bed and then go to bed, right? Or, hey, light, and that's about I'm waking up, I'm ready, and now I'm saying the Shema. But you're right, we've already moved it off of the farthest bookends, right, that we could imagine it being. But the real revolution happens when after that whole bigger 
set of words essentially gets tacked onto the Shema, it also then gets joined to the Amida, right? To this standing prayer that's said three times a day, um, one in the middle of the day, but one at the beginning and one at the end. And there's a move that develops over time to link the Shema and its blessings to the Amida. It's like I I want to say the Shema moved from being a verse or maybe almost an incantation to being liturgy. Yeah. And it's like you can print it on page 87 before the Amida on page, you know, 95. Yes, right. right. It's just part of this flow. And the question is what happens, right, once that linkage happens? That linkage first happens in the morning, which, okay, just sort of brings together two things. But also, if you think about it, pushes the Shema later. Because Rabbi Eliezer initially clearly would have preferred, he was like, the deadline is sunrise. But ideally, you would say it earlier, Mm -hmm. right? You would say it as soon as there's the first crack of dawn. If you want to link it to the Amidah, though, and if the Amidah really shouldn't be said until sunrise, for reasons that are based on all kinds of other texts, now you actually have to push Shema later. It shouldn't be earlier than right next to sunrise in order to link that up. And the more dramatic thing that happens is once Rabbi Yochanan comes along in the Talmud and says, hey, you have to link the Shema to the Amida not only in the morning, but also in the evening, well then, Hashkivenu, that last blessing, which is all about going to sleep, now even that's not the last thing you say. In other words, not only has Shema been displaced, but we now have blessings about going to sleep, and then we move on to the Amidah, to this whole other piece of liturgy. And by the time you're done, the kind of linkage of all of these things to those initial stimuli has been weakened. Plus, now that we have electricity, the difference between when you said Mariv and when you're going to sleep could be several hours. That's right. So that, in a way, works with that development, but just leads us with a question of, Where am I anymore? Where is the Shema in my day? So it's super interesting, I think, then to see when compensatory measures emerge, (laughs) when people basically feel that something is off here. Yes, I'm like a religious, observant Jew. I say what it tells me to say, but, but I need more. I need something else. And you find basically... There are two phantom versions of the Shema that then emerge, and you can kind of trace how they emerge over time, that I think the best way to understand them is they're a compensation of wanting to get Shema back to the beginning and the end of the day. There's something really powerful that I want to say, like, you know, cosmically, maybe the Shema is meant to be at bedtime, Especially when you look like sort of across the Jewish community, right? The number of Jews who are actually showing up to Mariv or saying Mariv even on their own versus the number of Jews who are saying the Shema at bedtime um, is like there's something about the the Shema wants to be said at bedtime, right? Even the people who aren't saying it in the other contexts um, are still able to, to make time and to prioritize 
the reciting of this verse, you know, that there's a way in which I think that the drama of the story that you started with, where we could just like walk through Times Square and say the Shema and see who looked up, I think it would still work. Mm-hmm. I would love to see the actual survey data on that. You know, I always wish like the Pew survey would ask, <laughs> hey, when do you say the Shema, et cetera? And even if it was a smaller sample set, like to get a sense, because I do think you're right. There is something powerful about seeing which practices, which liturgies like stick for which people when, right? And why. So just to, to lay out, the, these two phantom shmas, or maybe there's a better way to refer to them, but I, I think of them. It's like there's repressed desire, right, mm-hmm. uh, that, that emerges. So I think many people are familiar with the bedtime shma, kriyat shma al-hamita. If you look formally in like how the Talmud talks about that, it'll say it's to protect you against demons, it's to protect you against the sort of forces that are lurking at night. And they'll even go so far as to say, oh, Tamidei Chachamim, scholars of Torah, they don't need to say it because they're protected by their learning, right? Hmm. But really, I think if you look anthropologically, what's going on there is Bishoch Becha. People are feeling like, okay, I get we added all these uh, different you know, verses around this text, I get we've linked it with the Amidah, but I'm not going to let go actually saying that I accept and love God as the last thing before I go to bed. And then in the morning, a little bit less known, there's another version of this. So the Shema has been important to Jews, and because it's been important to Jews, it has sometimes been important to people persecuting Jews, which is to say mm. there's a history of preventing Jews from saying the Shema. That is to say, at various periods of persecution of Jewish communities, sometimes one of the things that the authorities would outlaw is saying the Shema. Oh, take away their, their creed from them, right? They, they, wow. won't, they won't last. Um, and there seems to have been one version of this uh, in Babylonia in the kind of post-Talmudic period, uh, so like very early Middle Ages, um, where there was like a wiping out of saying the Shema in public. And there formed this kind of uh, little mini liturgy that people were meant to say on their own at home when they couldn't go to the synagogue. It appears still in every standard sidur. It's called Kabbalat Ol Malchut Shamayim, the acceptance of the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. But what it actually is, is a little kind of narrative set of paragraphs about how God loves us, we're devoted to God, etc., etc. And the Shema appears there, right? It's tucked in in the beginning. Uh, there are a lot of people who pray every day who skip over that section as stuff that happens in the middle of the Sidur. I am a big proponent of not only with my own kids, but telling people, no, like it's in there. You should mm-hmm. say it. And the reason I think it's still in there is sure, in a period of persecution, there may be any number of things that you do, but actually it's stuck in the Sidur even after the persecution was over. That is to say, the way it's printed in Sidurim today, you'll find a whole section there. It's got this early Shema, but there's also the later Shema. So what's it doing in there? I think the simple explanation is, Bikumecha, when you get up, there's a sense of, hey, I don't want to wait to like, I've gone to Minyan, or it's, you know, an hour later, or I'm waiting to pray with the community. I should be saying this essentially as soon upon waking as is reasonable. 
Right. The other image, um, we talked about birth and, and death. I also feel like another image is the fact that the Shema is the text in our mezuzah, right? It's like when, mm-hmm. you, when you're crossing a threshold moment or an actual threshold, um, that's the text you want to check in with, you know, that it's like we can't make it through the sleeping to waking part of our the day. That's too important of a threshold to not have the Shema with us. Um, in that moment. So we have to find a way to to tuck it in somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. It's really beautiful to think of it as guarding our comings and goings both in space and time, right? In that way. And to answer the questioner, so on some level, the answer is you might end up saying the Shema four times a day because there's a kind of two times two effect here where okay, there's what were the two original statements of the Shema, which kind of migrated away from the bookends because they were surrounded by more liturgy and they were linked to these other important elements like the Amidah. And those remain real core elements of the practice. But you've got these other two, which seem to pop up to still guard the bookends and the liminal transitions. Now, how you manage that that comes to be an interesting question among different poskim and people who think about these things from a more normative level. Like, when should you intend to fulfill the biblical obligation? Should it be in the main section of prayer? Should it be in the very early and late moments? It's which, which shmas are the phantom shmas. <laughs> That's exactly right. And what's interesting is, you do have some views that basically say you should have intention at the earliest and latest ones for it to fulfill that obligation. And the other stuff has almost become uh, just reading some passages from the Torah mm-hmm. in the middle of our liturgy, but it's not the real, real Shema. And other voices that say, what are you talking about? Of course, the one that's encased in rabbinic brachot is the real one. The other ones are maybe covering bases or, you know, emotionally significant. Often the way that practically you'll have some voices, like the Bach of your Sirkis is a voice in this regard. They'll say, well, it depends on the timing, meaning sometimes you'll go to a Mariv and it won't be that late. And so then you really have to intend that the Shema you say later and maybe at right. bedtime really counts for the thing that's happening at night. Or sometimes in the morning, what's going to happen is once you get to shul, if it's a late Shabbat morning, they may not quite make the time of Shema. So the one you say at home have full intention for that to count. That's a way of trying to hold the different spaces here, maybe on different days as having different functions. Yeah, I kind of want to say you can say the Shema four times a day, and the two that count are the two that you listen to. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like maybe the answer is no times is too many times to say your daily affirmation. And I think that's especially clear when we think of it, as you said, it's so it's not just a prayer and it's not just fulfilling an obligation like so many other obligations we have. But the Shema actually becomes an essence of who we are, of our identity as Jewish people, of our relationship with God. Um, And in that way, you know, what a blessing that we could have maybe four opportunities instead of two to really carry this with us, Um, you know, in addition addition to 
any other moments in study, in walking through doorways, in putting on tefillin where we could encounter encounter the Shema. Yeah, and as you said at the beginning, quite aside from the question of individualized obligations on a daily basis, I think all of this is meant to add up to a picture where this is just like embedded in our consciousness. Um, I think one other really interesting data point is in general, you're not allowed to quote passages from the Torah completely by heart without a text in front of you. It's not always followed, but that's an idea. Like, hey, this is a sacred text. You got to get it exactly right. Don't do it from memory. The exception to that is the Shema, where we both assume and expect and want people to have that completely down and memorized. And it's just part of who they are because you think about it and say it so many times a day. Right. When you open your mouth, this is just what comes out. Thank you. Thank you. What do you hear? Do you hear the breeze? Do you hear the trees? Do you hear the birds singing to the honeybees? Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at responsaradio at hadar.org. Responsa Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute. Thanks to Jeremy Tabak for producing this podcast and to David Chabinski for recording and editing this episode. Your heart always knows. So listen, 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 listen to your heart. It always knows